Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Poetry of Creation and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 18th, 2008. On humanity's first trip to and orbit around the moon, on Christmas Eve 1968, the three Apollo 8 astronauts, Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and Jim Lovell, celebrated the remarkable scientific achievement by reading some ancient religious poetry. Even though the poetry was 3,000 years old, it was familiar to almost everyone. The astronauts read ten verses from the lectionary for this week beginning with the very first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I was 13 years old at the time, and I still remember the emotional resonance of those elegant words as people around the world watched the grainy television images and listened to the crackly radio transmissions with their intermittent NASA beeps. Planet Earth never looked so beautiful so mysterious and so very fragile. The exquisite poetry of Genesis, so fundamental to any view of reality that claims to be Christian, has been dismissed by critics and distorted by believers. <clears throat> In one of the debates before Pennsylvania's presidential primary, for example, the moderator asked Barack Obama if the world was created in six days. That was a journalistic cheap shot, in my opinion, but it does reflect how some Christians read the creation story. It's like asking why a painting by Picasso or William Blake isn't more, quote-unquote, realistic. The creation poetry doesn't enlighten us about history, cosmology, or science as we understand those disciplines today. They never intended to do that, and even if that was their intent, their science and history would have been outmoded shortly after the author wrote. Just like our own science of 50 years ago seems outmoded today. And for that matter, how rudimentary today's science will look in 3,000 years, about the age of the Genesis poetry. Instead of cosmological conjecture, the Hebrew creation poetry elucidates truths that transcend and even undergird science and history. Some people call these transcendent truths myths, which is fine as long as you avoid the inference that a religious myth is false, whereas a scientific fact is true. G.K. Chesterton rightly observed that, quote, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be slayed. And similarly, Marcus Borg thus refers to what he calls the so-called surplus of meaning in a religious myth. The Genesis poetry subverts our own creation myths. We have numerous creation myths today, many of which try to claim the prestige of science. In his book, The Soul of Christianity, from 2005, the Berkeley professor Houston Smith characterizes these secular myths as scientistic. 
In other words, these scientific myths suggest that science is the only or the best source of reliable knowledge, the only type of knowledge worth knowing. But who would want a world reduced to the equations of chemistry and devoid of the beauty of a symphony? Reductionistic scientism, argues Smith, has been disastrous for the human spirit. The astrophysicist Carl Sagan, for example, was famous for his grave intonation on his show Cosmos that the universe is all there ever has been, is, or ever will be. That's a fascinating myth that deserves genuine debate, but it's neither scientifically verifiable or religiously satisfying. The Genesis poet proclaims that there's more to our world than just matter and energy, more than purposeless fate. It says that we're not alone, that we're not abandoned to our own selves, but that ever since the beginning, the Spirit of God has hovered over all existence like a tender mother. Or again, in his book, The Selfish Gene, from 1976, the outspoken atheist and zoologist Richard Dawkins of Oxford University objects to the idea that the human species deserves any special moral consideration compared with other species. Misguided religious zealots might believe that ancient, that ancient superstition, says Dawkins, but, quote, it has no proper basis in evolutionary biology, end quote. Peter Singer of Princeton similarly considers it a stubborn, dogmatic religious prejudice to believe that humanity enjoys a special place in the cosmos. The Genesis poet affirms that every single human being is created in the image of God. The Imago Dei isn't something that you can earn by being smarter, wealthier, or more ethical. And no person, for any reason, is ever bereft of the divine likeness. We can distort or enhance God's image by the choices we make, but we can never forfeit the divine signature. Affirming this image of God doesn't place humanity at the center of the universe, as is sometimes charged. Far from it. God alone is at the center of the creation story. And humanity, says the psalmist in this week's psalm, is made a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8, verse 5, charged with stewardship and care for all the earth, Genesis 1.26. As if we needed to hear something that we're tempted to forget, the ancient poet repeats a refrain six times at the end of each day of creation, that when God looked at his handiwork, quote, he saw that it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25. When God rested from his work, in a seventh and final flourish, the poet adds that God looked at his finished work and declared it very good. Genesis 1.31 Christians have been so convinced of the goodness of creation 
that they've borrowed a technical term from the non-Christian Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus, who died in the year 270, to define evil as a parasite on good. In other words, evil is a provatio boni, a lack, limitation, or distortion of something that's fundamentally good. And so, I like to interpret the ancient poetry of Genesis with the help of the modern poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1844 to 1889. In his poem called God's Grandeur from 1877, Hopkins considers the grace inherent in God's creation. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. <clears throat> Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge, and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward, springs because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Hopkins says that creation is charged with a flash of lightning or an electric shock. It's like the reflective power, he says, of crumpled foil. The creation overflows with the abundance of oil, as when you press or squeeze an olive. But, Hopkins admits, humanity fails to take notice. And even though the monotony of work and the bleers and smears of economic degradation separate us from the natural environment, for all this, nature is never spent. There's a regenerative and renewing power in creation's dearest freshness deep down things. Like the eastern dawn that overtakes the western darkness, like a mother's warm breast, the Spirit of God still broods with bright wings to sustain and preserve what was created in the beginning. <clears throat> For books this week, I review Paul Collier, The Bottom Billion, Why the Poorest Countries Are Failing and What Can Be Done About It. Oxford University Press, 2007, 205 pages. All societies were once poor, says the Oxford economist Paul Collier, but now most countries are either wealthy or at least lifting themselves 
out of poverty. In this view, about a billion people in the developed world are wealthy. And about four billion people live in countries that are, in fact, experiencing significant economic growth, mainly in China and India. This book, however, focuses on the one billion people badly stuck at the very bottom, who live in countries that are not only horribly poor, but not growing. These 60 or so countries are not merely falling behind, says Collier, they're falling apart. About 70% of these countries are in Africa. And unlike the middle 4 billion people, they are poorer today than they were in 1970. Picture this, writes Collier, as a billion people stuck in a train that's slowly rolling backward downhill. How and why has this happened? Collier and his colleagues identify four distinct traps that plague the bottom billion. They experience a disproportionate amount of conflict in civil wars and coups, what he calls development in reverse. They're caught in a natural resources paradox where what looks like a blessing, the presence of a significant natural resource, turns out to be a curse because the natural resource tends to slow economic growth, inhibit diversification, and encourage autocracy. To some extent, geography dictates economics. The bottom billion also live in countries that are landlocked with bad neighbors, which means that transport corridors in nearby markets are either bad or non-existent. And finally, and Collier is unsparing on this point, the bottom billion countries experience horrible governance, massive corruption, and breathtaking incompetence. In an interlude chapter, he explains how and why globalization has not helped these countries like it has the middle four billion people. Trade problems, the lack of private capital flowing into the countries, and the flow of human and private capital out of the country. Collier is a realist, but not a pessimist. He views these problems as serious, but fixable. These countries must rescue themselves, he says, but they can't and won't do it without help from the outside. There are powerful forces that resist change. In the last half of the book, Collier explains how four policy instruments can make a difference. Aid to these countries is highly politicized, bureaucratized, and badly abused. It has severe problems and limitations, but it's still necessary. Second, Collier explains how military intervention can restore order, maintain peace, and prevent coups. In a chapter on laws and charters, he argues for wealthy countries to change their own laws in ways to favor the bottom billion. The fourth instrument is better trade policy. Collier wants to move beyond the left, exemplified in Jeffrey Sachs's book, The End of Poverty, that argues that more aid is the answer. And beyond the right, exemplified in the book The White Man's Burden by William Easterly, 
that suggests that more aid is the problem. We need a new sort of thinking that grapples with what he calls three central propositions. First, we now face a development problem that is different than what we've had over the last 40 years. Not the one billion rich and the five billion poor, but the one billion people stuck at the very bottom. Second, this is not a contest between rich nations romanticizing poverty out of white guilt, but rather a titanic struggle within the bottom billion countries between genuine heroes who are working for change and powerful forces determined to preserve the status quo. And third, he says that we don't need to be bystanders. Our support for change can be decisive. In sum, Collier argues that we need to, quote, narrow the target and broaden the instruments. Paul Collier, The Bottom Billion, Why the Poorest Countries Are Failing and What Can Be Done About It. <clears throat> For film this week, we offer a review by David Wertherer. The title of the film is U2, U2 3D. C.S. Lewis once reflected on the difference between looking at a beam of light coming through the roof of a shed and looking along that beam of light. Looking at the beam, one sees dust motes. Looking along the beam, one sees the sky. Looking at is the third-person perspective, the neurologist's point of view, if you will. Neurons firing. Looking along is the first-person perspective, the patient's point of view. Sorrow, love, pain, and joy. The third-person vantage point is outside and impersonal. The first-person point of view is inside and deeply personal. Watching a concert film is often self-defeating. The visual images distract us from the music, sometimes forcing us to experience the show from the outside, if you will, when the whole point of live music is to enjoy it from the inside. The brilliant performances of U2 in the 3D technology in U2 3D change this. They push us into the show. At times I felt goosebumps, my eyes watered, and at the end of the concert I applauded, and was not the only one in the theater clapping. Much of this documentary film was shot in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The 14-song set includes Vertigo, Miss Sarajevo, Bullet the Blue Sky, The Fly, and the song Yahweh. And there's a reading of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In my experience of the show, the first encore of The Fly and With or Without You was jarring and disturbing. Bono once described The Fly as a phone call from hell from a guy who's enjoying it there. At that point of the show, I wished I were seeing hell from the outside instead of experiencing its noise and confusion on the inside. 
Yes, the show ends with Yahweh, a song of redemption, but I was too shell-shocked from the fly to fully find healing in that song. And the song played over the credits, which significantly undercut its impact. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis writes about a sweet desire that cuts across our ordinary distinctions between wanting and having. To have it is, by definition, a want. To want it, we find, is to have it. I experienced something of that wanting and having in the six-song sequence, Sunday Bloody Sunday, Bullet the Blue Sky, Miss Sarajevo, the reading of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Pride in the Name of Love, Where the Streets Have No Name, and finally, One. However, it would, be, it would not only be pointless, but self-defeating to try to dissect the connection between that desire and U2's performance of these songs. The point is not to look at the dust motes, but to see the sky. A music review by David Werther, U2-3D, a documentary film. And finally this week, we continue our series of poems by Hildegard of Bingen, who lived from 1098 to 1179. The title of the poem is O Eternal Lord. <clears throat> O Eternal Lord, <coughs> it is pleasing to you to burn in that same fire of love, like that from which our bodies are born, and from which you begot your Son in the first dawn before all of creation. So consider this need which falls upon us, and relieve us of it for the sake of your Son, <coughs> and lead us in joyous prosperity. Hildegard of Bingen, O Eternal Lord. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 18th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.